let's uh, pray again as we get ready to study this passage. Will you bow your heads as I lead us? Father, we are grateful, uh, Lord, for your word. And uh, Lord, we're grateful for uh, Riley reading it for us. Lord, but these are confusing things. Who can understand them without your spirit? So Jesus, would you send us your spirit today? Uh, as Tom already prayed, you are our hope. Uh, not this world, not politics, uh, not money, not fame, not power, not intelligence. Uh, none of those things, Lord. You, you are our hope. And so tell us what is coming in the future. Only you know that. And tell us how the future will impact today. Only you know that. So by your spirit, may we understand what you have for us as we open your word. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine uh, that your close friend, could also be your sister or your daughter or your granddaughter, is dating a guy. And she's convinced that this guy uh, is the one for her. But you think she's crazy. You've watched this situation unfold. You've watched this relationship work itself out. And from your point of view, you can't understand how can she not see this? He claims to be a Christian. Uh, and he lets your friend come to young adult stuff here at Calvary. But he himself is hardly involved in church and certainly not engaged with the Lord in any meaningful way that you can see. He's borrowing money from your friend always promising that he's going to get his finances in order in the future. Perhaps he has some relationships with previous girlfriends or other close female friends that he refuses to break off and continues to foster those relationships. Maybe uh, your friend has related to you that he's kind of been pressuring her to change some of her principles or standards about purity in the relationship. And you think to yourself, why can she not see this? Why can she not see that he is all wrong for her? But she's absolutely convinced. She's convinced that he's the one and she's regularly thanking God for him. And you're confused because others come to you as well and say, do you not think this is kind of a toxic relationship? Do you not think this is unhealthy? And in your heart, you're saying, yes, I do. And I, you've tried to maybe say something, but every time it's taken in the wrong way or every time it seems to not go very well. You see, your friend is in the worst possible situation she could be in, in that she's deceived. Maybe she so badly wants to be married. Maybe she so badly wants this person to be the right one. It seems like she is willfully choosing to ignore stuff that she herself believed or espoused in the past simply because she's so taken up with him or with the idea of marriage or this whole situation. And the problem is you can see it and others can see it, but she can't. And that is the worst possible situation to be in. I say it's the worst possible situation. If Satan were attacking her, that would be bad. But she would know it. If Satan were tempting her, that would also be bad but she would know it. When Satan is deceiving her, the great problem is she doesn't know it. Maybe when she was attacked in the past by the evil one, 
You had the opportunity to come alongside of her and you felt her pain and you cried with her and you went through that discouraging season or that, that, that bout with depression or whatever it may be, but you were there for her and you prayed for her and you could give her verses to encourage her and it was hard, but you were in it together. Or maybe when she went through a season of temptation, Likewise, you were there to walk alongside of her and when she fell or when she stumbled, you could encourage her and remind her that Jesus is a forgiving God and that she can rise back to her feet and you could hold her accountable and walk alongside of her and you were in that together. But the problem with deception is a person being deceived doesn't know that they're being deceived. And so instead of being in this together, she's going the opposite direction and you're thinking to yourself, I can't go with you where you're going. But she is convinced that she's headed in the right direction and she's actually hurrying herself toward this terrible thing that Satan has blinded her eyes. She's unable to see. So the question is, if you're that friend, or this is your daughter or granddaughter or sister or whatever the situation may be, what do you do? You know that she's being deceived. It's not just you, others can see it as well. The Lord's revealed to you that she's in a bad place. Do you say something? You've tried in the past to kind of gently like, hey, do you think maybe this might not be from the Lord? She is not open to that at all. Do you try more forcefully, risking the fact that if she does end up marrying this guy that you might be cut out of their relationship or your friendship might be damaged? Maybe you give the good, and it is good, Christian answer. I'm gonna leave it in the Lord's hands. God's in charge. She's his daughter. He loves her. He has all the power. He can do anything he wants. He can get through to her. I can't. Nobody else seems to be able to, but he can that is a great answer. It is absolutely true. But in another way, it just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit to the further question. Okay, what is God going to do in the face of deception? How does God respond when someone is being deceived? And is there any role for us to play alongside of God in the work that he's doing? Well, this morning we want to talk about this very difficult and very hard topic of deception. And I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. It's page 997 in the church Bibles. Revelation 11. In just a minute, we're gonna kind of study our way through this passage. But before we do, we need to kind of step back to understand when Revelation 11 will happen so that we can understand some of the stuff going on in the background. Now, when we first started the book of Revelation, I laid out for us just a pretty simple timeline of what is supposed to be coming in the future in accordance with how we read the scriptures here. We handed this out on the first week in the book of Revelation. It's available today on our website. You can just uh, go there and download it and look at it if you want to study it some more. There's some more passages and things that go with it. But this is just a very brief overview of what we think is coming next. We're, as you can imagine, in the now section. 
The next thing to come is something called the rapture in which Jesus returns and takes all of us who are believers in Jesus now with him to heaven. After the rapture, comes the tribulation. That is a seven-year period. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. The tribulation is followed by the return of Christ where he returns to this earth to set up a thousand-year or millennial kingdom on the earth, followed by final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. That's kind of a broad overview. For today, we need to focus on that middle section, specifically the part that's called the tribulation. So we've just kind of expanded that chart that we had before into this middle section. And this tribulation, we are told, is a seven-year period during which very difficult and hard things are happening and which much of the book of Revelation, especially the parts that we're in now, take place during. That tribulation is broken up into two halves. Just the regular part, I guess. And the second half, which is called the Great Tribulation. And the Bible actually literally divides the seven years in half so that you have three and a half years on each side. Now, three and a half years is also 42 months, and it's also 1,260 days if you use a 30-day month like the Bible is using. So when you hear the numbers three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days, it's referring to the same thing. In our passage, in verse two and three, we have 42 months and 1,260 days, both referring to this, the great tribulation. In other words, Revelation 11 is taking place during these three and a half years. It's not happening now. It's going to come in the future and it will happen as part of the great tribulation. Now to understand the background for what we're going to study this morning, we need to understand that the great tribulation, that second half, we don't just kind of slide into that. Uh, the world doesn't just sort of uh, slowly become part of the great tribulation. There is a singular event that happens that transitions the world from being in the time of the regular tribulation into the great tribulation. That singular event is foretold or given to us by Jesus in Matthew 24, Jesus is asked by his disciples, hey, tell us about end times. Tell us when the sign of your coming is. How do we know when you're going to return and all of those things? And Jesus says this in that chapter. So when you see standing in the holy place, and you might remember from last week, we talked about the temple and the rebuilt temple that is present during the tribulation. That's the holy place Jesus is talking about, the third temple standing in Jerusalem. When you see standing in the holy place, and then here's the key phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. The abomination that causes desolation, when you see that, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So Daniel prophesied about it. Jesus is picking up that prophecy and saying, when that happens, pay close attention. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great distress, or tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world 
until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to what? Deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. The signature event that causes the transition from the tribulation into the great tribulation is called by Jesus and Daniel the abomination that causes desolation. This is referring to a time when a person or being sets himself up in God's temple for worship as God even though he is not God. This, according to Jesus, is an abomination in God's very house, in a temple that is built for God's glory, in a temple that is rebuilt in accordance with the scriptures. A person or being will set himself up in that place to be worshiped as God. And Jesus says that will be the desecration of God's house, the abomination that causes desolation. That person who does that is referred to with three different titles in the Bible. Sometimes he is called the man of lawlessness. That's especially true in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's also referred to by a name we might be more familiar with. It comes out of 1 John, the Antichrist. John in the book of Revelation uses neither one of these titles, but he calls him the beast. The beast is the one referred to in verse seven. We're gonna hear more about the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, all the same person when we get to Revelation 13. But when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshiped in the temple, the abomination that causes desolation has happened and the world moves into the Great Tribulation. The hallmark of the Great Tribulation and the hallmark of the beast's activity is deception. You heard it when Jesus said it in Matthew 24. He will perform signs and wonders to deceive everyone, even Christians, if that were possible. You can feel the deception at the end of Revelation 9. Look back in your Bibles at Revelation 9. You may remember we had a little bit of a break in Revelation 10. We talked about the bitterness and the sweetness of the scroll and we talked about the temple last week. But Revelation 9 ends with the plagues and woes happening on the earth. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. 
one would ask the question, if heaven is opened up and these plagues are being poured out on the earth, how can people not think they need to repent? How can they not believe that something worse is coming? All of these plagues are already spelled out in the book of Revelation before even one of them comes to be. The truth of the matter is the world will be deceived. And so after all of this, they will still be convinced that God is not going to punish sin. They will still be convinced that they're going to be okay. Can you feel the deception? Deception is also present when the man of lawlessness is talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. Satan who is known as the father of lies. He, meaning the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, the beast, will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness, what? Deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but delighted in wickedness. What's happening on the earth in a way unprecedented in human history during this time is deception. Deception from the Antichrist, deception among people, almost a willful refusal to acknowledge all the amazing stuff that's happening. And so the question is, what will God's response be to deception in the future? The purpose for answering this question is because how God responds to deception in the future, in the worst possible cases of deception, helps us understand how God responds to deception today. And that's what Revelation 11 is about. You might expect that after all of these plagues and all of these signs and all of these wonders, when people willfully continue to sin, you might expect that in the midst of their deception, God simply crushes them. But Revelation 11 is not that story. Instead, what God does in his unbelievable mercy and grace, in his long suffering, he says, verse three, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, so the entire length of the great tribulation, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. God will send two witnesses. We don't know who these two witnesses are. Some have speculated that they're Enoch and Elijah, because these are the two people that we know of in human history who never died, but were translated directly to heaven. Might be them, could be others, we're not told. But God will send two witnesses on the earth. And these two witnesses are called lampstands, because in the midst of darkness, you need light. 
and they are told they are told that they are like olive trees in the sense of this is a reference to Zechariah 4 that these two people will be connected to the Holy Spirit in a unique way that the Holy Spirit will be upon them because they stand before the Lord of all the earth and instead of simply abandoning people to the deception God will send witnesses what will those two witnesses do? They do two things. The first thing that they do, verses five and six, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heaven so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. The first thing that these two witnesses are going to do is they're going to prophesy, meaning they're going to speak truth for God. How does God combat deception? With truth. God speaks the truth and so he needs witnesses who will stand up and speak what he tells them to speak. Their words will be accompanied by signs and wonders because God is combating the false signs and wonders that the Antichrist is doing. And so these two witnesses will also be performing signs and wonders, but that's not what rescues people out of deception. What rescues them out of deception is that they are speaking God's truth. They are revealing truth. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. So that's the first thing that these witnesses will be doing. The second thing that they're going to do is something much more difficult and much more amazing. Verse seven. Now when they had finished their testimony, so after they had spoken what God wanted them to speak for three and a half years, the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, that comes out from the abyss, comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, that's Jerusalem, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. That's how far Jerusalem has fallen into sin. Where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Well, as you listen to this, if you're familiar with the story of Christianity, this ought to sound somewhat familiar. A person killed in Jerusalem, raised from the dead, who ascends into heaven, that is Jesus' story. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, come among us, was sent to the city of Jerusalem where he gave his life 
so that we could be saved. And as a vindication of his righteousness, God did not allow him to stay in the grave, but raised him from the dead. And then Jesus ascended to heaven where he is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords waiting for the moment in which he returns to the earth as the Lord of all things. But right before that moment happens, before Jesus returns, God has these two witnesses go through something relatively similar. Now, you got to be careful when I say that. They do die in Jerusalem, but they are not dying on a cross for our sins. They are not making atonement. They are not accomplishing what Jesus accomplished, but they are going through the things Jesus went through. They're dying, they're being resurrected, and they are ascending to heaven. Why? The greatest response to the deception in the world is the resurrection of Jesus. How do we know that Christianity is true? How do we know that God is good? How do we know that God loves us? Jesus came among us and said, I am God, I love you. And he did miraculous signs and wonders. But that was not the ultimate proof. He said, if you want to know, put me to death and I will raise myself from the dead again. And that will be objective evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. And so the resurrection is proof that cuts through the deception and helps those who are deceived to know God's love and his power. So what does God do at the end? Before Jesus returns? He does this one more time. You see, 2,000 years ago, although it was theologically possible, God did not choose to have Jesus' resurrection broadcast to the whole world. God could have written it in the sky. He could have had Jesus go and visit every country on earth and every person on earth in a resurrected state so they could see it. Instead, God had Jesus resurrected from the dead in a small corner of the empire that only a few hundred people got to witness. At the end, God will cause a resurrection to happen that the whole world will see. Now look. Imagine you were reading the book of Revelation a thousand years ago and you read the part about the whole world is going to watch this happen. Would you not think that was crazy? What about today? Do you think it's possible for the entire world to watch these two people get killed in Jerusalem, to watch them be raised from the dead and to watch them ascend to heaven? It is indeed possible, and in fact, that is most likely what would happen. This would be the major news event of the entire world. What is God doing? He is allowing the entire world to see his power and his love that they could only know by faith with regards to Jesus. Now he's making it abundantly clear through this death and resurrection and ascension of these two witnesses. As deception increases, 
the clarity of what God is doing increases so that people have the chance to be saved. And guess what? It's somewhat effective. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a seventh, a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified. And what? Gave glory to the God of heaven. That is John's language for they've believed. They've become Christians. God has done this and lots of people in the city of Jerusalem get saved and by extent we think millions of people on the earth get saved. They see through the deception of the Antichrist and come to understand and realize that Jesus is the Messiah and these two witnesses who died and were resurrected and ascended, they point to the truthfulness of what happened with Jesus and it appears that millions and millions and millions of people see and believe and are saved. Isn't that great? That you read Revelation and all this stuff is going on and you think, okay, God's just angry. He desperately wants to save people. And even as the very last act before Jesus returns, he gives a blatant visual sign for anybody who's ever said, well, if I saw a resurrection, then I would believe. God says, I'm going to give to, to the entire world to watch happen because he is a God of love and mercy, and kindness, and he wants people to be saved. Listen, if your heart is broken for that loved one who's deceived, how do you think God feels? If your heart is saddened for the trouble that is coming for this person who just can't see, how do you think God feels? And this is how he responds. So what about for today? This is how God will respond to the great deception that is coming. And it gives us insight into how God responds today when people are being deceived and helps us to know what role we should play for those that we love who are under Satan's deception. What God needs today are witnesses. He needs witnesses who will do two things. First, he need witnesses who will speak the truth. He needs prophets. He needs people who are so connected to the Holy Spirit, so full of the Lord that they will say whatever God gives them to say. He needs people who will not say what God has not given them to say. That people who do exactly what God tells them to do, you cannot get out of deception without truth. And so God needs someone. Jesus says, my words are truth. The truth will set you free. He needs somebody who will stand up in whatever situation. If it's, a, if it's your friend who is being deceived in a relationship, if you know somebody who is deceived about the power of food to be an idol, if someone is deceived about the power of politics and how that can be an idol in their life, if someone is deceived about the need for submission, if someone is deceived by false religions or by alcohol or by sex addiction or by whatever it may be, God needs someone who will stand up and speak the truth. But prophets do not speak when they feel like speaking. Prophets say what God tells them to say. 
Prophets say it when God tells them to say it. And prophets say it how God tells them to say it. Just remember, these prophets are speaking the very words of the Lord. But for three and a half years. It's not that the first time they speak for God, suddenly everybody sees and repents. And so God needs prophets who are willing to say whatever God tells you to say. If you have a loved one who is deceived, if there is someone in your life that you desperately want to have see the truth, God says, will you be a witness? Will you be a witness? Will you speak when I tell you to speak? Will you be silent when I tell you to be silent? Will you be willing to journey with these people for however long it's going to take speaking only what I tell you to speak, looking for openings, not pushing your way forward, trying to discern, is the Spirit giving me a chance to say something? Praying before you mention something to go, okay, Lord, please don't let me get this wrong. That's what God is looking for. The second thing he wants from you and I as witnesses, and this is the harder thing, because if I read Revelation 11, if I'm honest with you, the first part of the job description I'm all for that. You need somebody to speak the truth. You need someone to have miraculous powers. You need someone to like turn water into blood or call fire from, sign me up for that. Like who wouldn't love it if government officials are like, you can't meet as a church anymore. And we're like, oh yeah, well watch this. And like your bank accounts will be empty before you get back home <laughs> and have it happen. Or someone who is denouncing Jesus and you're like, you will not speak again until you repent. And then they're not able to. No wonder the whole world's celebrating when those two people get killed. That's a lot of power and that's a lot of difficulty for people to go through. But who doesn't want that job? Who doesn't want to have the ability to be whatever you say comes to pass? But the second half of the job description, that's the part when you keep reading down the list, you're like, oh, no, no, I don't really want that so much. The second thing that God needs is witnesses who are willing to suffer. The only way through deception is for people to see God's resurrection power. But the only way for resurrection power to be revealed is through death. Metaphorically and in reality. And God says, I need witnesses who are willing to do what these two will do. I mean, after three and a half years of having everything they say come to pass, after three and a half years of having God's power mightily present in them, they're gonna go to Jerusalem and they're gonna lose a battle with the Antichrist in the most public way possible. Their death will be a celebration for the world. People are gonna send each other gifts. That seems strange to me. That's how hated they will be and humiliated. I thought you were prophets of the Lord Most High and here you are defeated by the Antichrist. But in order for people's faith not to be in the two witnesses, but in the Jesus who is coming after them, they have to die so that people can see the power rests not in them or in their good deeds or their righteousness, but in Jesus. This is the last thing before Jesus returns. This is the last opportunity 
for people to be able to see and to understand. And the very last act is two people who are willing to follow Jesus in his suffering and in his death so that God's resurrection power can be displayed through them. And to be honest, what the Lord needs today is people who are willing to do the same. Some of us in this room, some of us watching online, have had the really, really difficult choice of having a child or a friend or a spouse, a loved one who is deceived. Maybe they're deceived by the wickedness of sin. And we've had to pray the prayer that no parent, no friend, no child ever wants to pray, which is, Lord, do to them whatever you need to do to get their attention and bring them back to you. It's a gut-wrenching prayer because you know the trouble is coming. You know that they're gonna walk through a wilderness as God tries to get their attention. Let me just say, Revelation 11 is talking about something even harder. And that is Jesus is looking for some witnesses who will say, do to me whatever you need to do to rescue them from the deception they're going through. Deception is Satan's most powerful tool. When someone's being attacked, you can comfort them. You can encourage them. You can strengthen them. When someone is being tempted, you can help them. You can come alongside of them. You can walk with them. But when they are being deceived, this is the nexus of Satan's power. And the one thing that triumphs over that kind of deception is sacrificial love. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, he is not praying, God do to them whatever you need to do to them to get them through this deception. He is praying, Lord, I don't wanna do this, but do to me whatever you need to do to me so that they can be saved. Now I'll tell you this, I wrote this sermon and I thought, oh, that's really, that's kind of a cool truth. <laughs> and I thought of a particular situation in which somebody was being deceived and I thought, would I actually pray that prayer? <laughs> and to be honest, my breath caught in my throat and something in my heart. I don't love the prayer, do to them whatever you need to do to them so they come, but I do like that one a lot better than do to me whatever you need to do to me for their sake. But let me just remind us, those of us who maybe have somebody in our life that is deceived and right the minute I mentioned deception, they came to mind. And throughout this entire sermon, you've been thinking of that person. And now we've gotten to this point and you heard the first half and you're like, yeah, I wanna be a prophet. It's gonna be hard, but I wanna tell them the things God wants me to tell them. I wanna be quiet when I'm supposed to be quiet. And now we've gotten to this piece. And you've thought to yourself, yeah, but I'm not sure I wanna go through cancer so they can come back to faith. I'm not sure I wanna go through financial ruin so they can see that money is not all it's cracked up to be. I'm not sure that I wanna go through the difficulties 
of having one of my own children suffer or go through something horrendous so they can see God's power and his love. And you think to yourself, I don't know if I can do that. Just remember how it turned out for Jesus. Just remember how it's going to turn out for these two witnesses. And just remember that your God loves you so much that if you're willing to follow Jesus to say, not my will, but yours be done. God will not abandon you to whatever that hardship may be. It will be hard. It will be difficult. And part of you is gonna wanna say, just I wanna put my head in the sand and say, Lord, come up with some other way. Jesus too wanted God to come up with some other way. And the father said, there is no other way. This is the way. And Jesus followed. And God has raised him from the dead and seated him on high with eternal glory. God will not abandon you if you choose to follow the road of Jesus. So what's our response to that friend who's deceived? To that child who is misled? To the loved one among us who just can't see? Our response is to say to Jesus, here am I, I wanna be a witness. Tell me what to say, tell me when to say it, tell me how to say it, tell me when to be quiet. May the Lord give you discernment to know those things. And here I am, Jesus. You went through what you went through so I could stop being deceived. Put me through what I need to go through so that they won't be deceived. And may the Lord give you the courage to fix your eyes on Jesus as you walk that road with him. Let's pray together. Father, it is sobering to think of the power of deception. We're not in the end times, but deception is all throughout this world. We see it and feel it over this past year in unique ways. We see deception everywhere. Truthfully, Jesus, I want you just to come back and announce where everybody else is wrong. But that's not what you've called and decided to do. Once you do that, it is too late. And so Lord, we know that you are patient, not wanting any to perish. And so God, with as much courage as we can muster as a church and even as individuals, we say, here we are, Lord. Let us be witnesses. Let us be witnesses in this city, in this country, in this world. Let us be witnesses as a church. Let us be witnesses as individuals. Lord, there are those among us who are deceived. We live in a country full of deception. We live in a world that is easily deceived. God, let us be a light. Let us be lampstands in the dark. Let your spirit come upon us. Show us what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and when to be silent. And Lord, lay on us whatever road you want to lay on us so that others might be saved. Give us the strength to walk this journey. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.